and welcome to the Utah Tech Leads Leadership Series. Today, we are joined by Richard Leverett. Hi, Richard. How are you doing today? Doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great. So we're here to talk about leadership, talk about tech, talk about Utah, all sorts of, you know, very, very broad questions. So just to get started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I am a consultant and lawyer and lobbyist. Uh, and I just finished my first year and a couple months in, in Utah. That's two winters, uh, originally from Gary, Indiana, um, where I was born and raised there. And, um, I went to law school, all my schooling was in the Midwest, but university undergrad, University of Chicago for law school. And I spent the last eight years with AT&T before, um, after a year here, branching out on my own to sort of, uh, you know, explore Utah a bit and then see if I could, um, you know, make, make an impact in the market myself. Absolutely. So what about Utah was appealing to you when you were first deciding to move here? You know, uh, comparatively uh, to where, where, I, where I grew up in the Midwest, part of the sort of the industrial Midwest and the Rust Belt, I guess it's called, uh, I spent the last um, probably decade and a half of my career, um, probably all of my career, really, in some way adjacent to rebuilding, uh, re rebuilding, redevelopment, looking at uh, towns that were, uh, you know, booming in the 50s and 60s and 70s even, and trying to sort of revitalize those in the early part of the 21st century, right, trying to figure out how do we bring people back? How do we redevelop old factories and old uh, corridors and, and these sort of things? And I just got really exhausted with that and really wanted to look at a place that would, that had the amenities that I was trying to build, whether it be a uh, transit, uh, really active, um, sort of uh, active and accessible uh, transportation and recreation. And I think combining that with the growth in the building you see happening in Utah, there was no better place for me to move to. Yeah, it's definitely rapid growing and people tend to have a good idea of what the future is going to hold here and and try as hard as they might to to build for that future. It's definitely an interesting place. So why um, what did you do at yeah. ATT and why did you end up venturing out on your own and what have you seen after you've ventured out on your own? So yeah, I, I joined AT&T after being um sort of city attorney and a chief of staff to the mayor for uh, about four years. Um, I had done that and, and joined AT&T because really found this intersection of technology, uh, civic innovation, um, civic communication, civic engagement, uh, really interesting. And AT&T had a role that combined that with sort of with my, my legal background and also uh, my political connections where I could do sort of those three things, right? So working on civic engagement um, and in the community and sponsoring different events and sponsoring uh, sort of the, the, the tech. Um, AT&T, like large, my main large corporation has a lot of priorities over the last years, but I think sort of coinciding with, uh, even before COVID happened, how do we get more people access to, to uh, digital literacy, right? And the parts of that, whether it's accessibility, whether it's literacy and actually like understanding what's happening on the internet, um, and then just affordability. And so working on those three prongs really was an interest of mine, um, but also understanding how cities, towns, economic development agencies use tech. And so with AT&T, I was able to sort of bridge those gaps and sort of navigate those spaces, serving boards, economic development commissions, um, different um, um, nonprofit foundations that were all involved in deploying tech dollars into communities, whether city side, whether school side, after school programs, and, and making sure that everyone 
had had access to this like digital revolution. Absolutely. So in addition, we it's had to support ATT and the network and expanding those things, right? So with that comes investment, like billions of dollars of investment in infrastructure, whether it be uh, permits, fiber, wireless towers, and those things. And so I moved here to Utah to handle Utah, Idaho, Montana for AT&T from a wireless deployment standpoint and uh, community investment side. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So you, you talked a lot about kind of digging into communities and really finding out what their needs are. What are some of the challenges that you've seen in your career, not only from that aspect, but from just community engagement as a whole? You know, things move so fast in the tech space that if you're not in the, even if you are in the field, it, really, it moves really fast, right? But you're, you're just outside of it, right? Let's imagine how we're throwing like chat GPT down everyone's neck right now. And everyone, everyone's saying like, what is this? How is this affecting schools? How is it affecting grades? It's that thing where, you know, it used to be, I think the millennial joke was just your grandparents asking you about this new tech thing. And now it's like your older siblings or your older cousins asking you because things are moving so fast that only people who are like really digital natives and really, really in it really get it, right? So uh, when you're trying to take that and say, how do I invest uh, dollars from a corporate standpoint, like philanthropic dollars, right? Or even spending public funds, right? That's when it comes down to like really a budget appropriations, how schools spend money, what the state invests in, how do you figure out what to invest in when things are moving so fast? And that's where it becomes, that's where it becomes a challenge, right? And I think um, even, you know, when I was, before I was with AT&T, with AT&T and since then, trying to navigate that space to say, let me be a trusted advisor to say what we should be spending money on, what we should look out for, what skills are still important to develop, um, and you know what should we sort of let fall by the wayside. That's really hard to sort of figure out. And it's something as simple as, you know, when do you upgrade your phones to when do you upgrade your computers? When do you give all kids uh, tablets and what do you lose out when they get tablets? Those sort of things. Absolutely. So how do you keep your finger on the pulse of the needs of your community and how you can fight for those things? You know, it's sad to say it's a lot of screen time. It's a lot of reading, <laughs> a lot of engaging. And, you know, when when, when we had the, um, the COVID-19 epidemic and everyone was on Zoom and Teams and any other platform that was out there, um, it was weird for me because I was like, I was already on those platforms watching videos and doing these things all the time. And then like everyone was on it. And I was like, this is weird. Everyone's on video. Everyone's everyone's consuming information the same way. And it just became just more and more of that, right? And it's it's constantly trying to watch out for watch out for new tech, watch out for new innovation, see, you know, what makes life easier and who's at the forefront of that. And then how to explain that to government officials, politicians, and you know, assuage their fears, whether it's kids or kids in porn or kids and guns or families and it's all kind of things that you know the fears that the internet comes up right but it's like we're improving life in some ways how do we how do we remove the harms how do we balance those interests to keep you know um keep investment high in, in tech so yeah it's always a trade-off um but it's constant education and screen time yeah i the amount of things that people send to me that they've already read for the day I, I just kind of always feel behind. There's so much information. So constantly coming in and updating everything that we all know to be the norm. It's kind of crazy to yeah. try to keep up with. Yeah. So if you, were, if you were just starting out in your career, um, what advice would you give to yourself? 
I could go back. I mean, I I enjoy sort of being a jack of all trades, but if I could go back, I would tell myself to pick one thing. Pick one thing because um, I think it does take a lot of time and energy to sort of pay attention to the entire framework of tech and civic innovation and government and multiple states, multiple parties, multiple countries, multiple privacy things, right? And to focus on one thing, I think that um, my friends and colleagues who are a privacy law expert or employment law expert um, have much more stability. And I think um, I, I would trade some of the some of the um, excitement for a little bit of boredom and stability, um, I think. So embrace the boredom, maybe like know yeah. know what you want and how to get there, and don't overload your plate. Yeah, embrace the routine, right? Yeah, you, I mean, I think it's better when your adventures are chosen like a vacation rather than a way of life. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. You know, flying by the seat of your pants, as we are want to do. Yeah, I, I, I've, made, I've made a great living doing it. Um, Probably rather that, you know, maybe may that and start snowboarding in my thirties when I still have some athletic ability left. Oh man, snowboarding. That's so hard on the knees and I'm in my thirties and all I can think of is like how much my knees hurt right now <laughs> having not snowboarded. <laughs> it would only make it that much worse. It, it's lighter than a lot of other things. That's um, totally fair, totally fair. So what are the kind of like leadership traits that you have seen as necessary to succeed here? And how do you think that you gained those traits? You know, um, a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I did a talk with um, students at the Black Cultural Center at the, at the University of Utah. And we were talking about um, moral and ethic leadership, ethical leadership. And I think that's, uh, that's a catchy, not, not a catchy phrase right now. I mean, it's been it's been around for eons, but uh, folks trying to look at that now to see, you know, what type of leadership does it take to sort of not only succeed but also feel good about it. And I think we have so much information on so many people and so many things now that um, one, you you have to be critical of how people how people succeed and what it means to sort of lead and pull people along, right? Um, Mentorship, sponsorship is important. Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion are important, right? How do you balance all of these things in your career to sort of um, make sure that as you're moving along, your progress uh, isn't matched by or, or, or overmatched by some harm that you're doing, right? And I think that a lot of people are conscious of that. And I think that's, you know, across, across party lines, across ideologies, no one wants to uh, do more harm than good. Right? And so when, you, when you're judging your own success and you're judging your own way of leading, it's like, how do you lead ethically, responsibly, wholeheartedly? Um, you know, I think we have like personal grind and burnout culture. Um, but when you think about placing those things, placing those demands on other, other people within your firm or within your social circle or your work circle, right? Um, what does work-life balance look like? How do you respect others' worth like balance? How do you respect others' cultures and pull all those things in? Right? And so that, there's a lot happening there um, because at the end of the day, if you're running a business, you want to be profitable. You want to be a nonprofit, you want to be effective. And how do you measure those things? How do you measure those things uh, truthfully, honestly, ethically, and in a way that, you know, really feels good? 
I think a lot of us are very evaluative of our lives and on the daily, we know exactly what metrics we have to hit for our work every day, but we don't always have that same kind of eye towards our personal lives and how we get to the places we want to get. We just follow a path that honestly no longer exists for a lot of us in the way that the workforce has changed. So you mentioned mentoring a little bit. So tell me how um, mentoring and networking has kind of played into your success as a professional so far. You know, I I think I benefited from um, a lot of great mentors earlier in my career, Um, older lawyers, older politicians. Um, And I I grew up in a place um, you know, completely different than uh, than anything in in sort of Utah. I mean, I think uh, Gary, Indiana was the first city to elect um, first city over 100,000 people to elect a black mayor in the country. Um, it, it hosted the National Black Political Convention in 1972. And I think for a DEI conversations now that we're having, what came out of those conversations in 72, or from 69 to 72, um, between the mayors of Gary, um, um, Cleveland and Atlanta and DC, Washington, DC, where, where that, how do you um, invest and grow a black middle class when one hasn't hadn't existed before? How do you use power within cities and government to sort of um, to, to create this middle class community that hasn't existed? And I think there are a lot of allegories there. And, and, and those folks were and still are mentors of mine, uh, people who are involved in those movements, um, um, including um, you know, Maxine Waters and Jesse Jackson. I mean, I still talk to them a few times a year. Um, but I think that was really a precursor to how we do economic development now, paying attention to large construction projects and who gets those contracts and how to disperse those things and how do we make sure that minority and women-owned businesses are involved in those things, right? Those conversations were ha- happening in a very politically revolutionary way 50 years ago. And now I think it's more commonplace to have those, but we really have the metrics to look and see who's left out. And so for me, coming from that background, like how to use the government, how to understand what government spending is like and what what that means for communities, what that means for a stable middle class, is something I was ingrained with all of my life. And so then coming to a place like Utah, where there's a lot of building happening, a lot of investment happening, a lot of a lot of new folks, a lot of uh, immigration and, and a lot of emphasis on diversity and inclusion economically and what those programs should look like. Well, I have, you know, my lifetime and 50 years of experience and and, 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 and written documents and see how things work um, and how to build these communities um, and, and people to talk to about things they face. So a lot of things, conversations seem like they're repeating, right? It's the same thing I heard in the 90s as a, early, as a student that are repeating here in Utah. It's very interesting. Um, to be in those conversations. And I think um, having that background in history sort of helps me navigate spaces, um, spaces like this, where there's a lot of opportunity, uh, a lot of change happening at once, um, and um, how to balance, how to pull people together to sort of get stuff done and everyone can be happy with. Tell me what the best advice that you've ever gotten from a group chat has been. (laughs) Best advice ever from a group chat? Yeah, we're all in about 55 of them at least. So there's got to be somewhere along those lines that you got some interesting advice or even made you think a little bit differently about something. I mean, you know, I think the the best advice is is for me, it's the simplest advice. And this is 
it, it might not be a Utah thing, right? Um, but it's, um, you know, everyone stopped working and meet me at the bar, right? And it's not about drinking, it's about let's collectively back away from this, get in front of each other and just power down for a minute, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, that part of understanding lives and teamwork, and it, it could be, it could be, you know, it could be back away from this and go to a kid's game or, or, or be with your family or something like that. Like those sort of things, the messages and alerts that bring everyone together saying, everyone take a pause, right? Those are, I think the best messages because when you get things clouding your head and you have group things happening and a bunch of other stuff going on, it's hard to pull away from it when you're engaged in, 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 in intellectual battle and, and trying to figure out things like you're pounding at the table, right? So the message of, the collective message of everybody to step away for a second um, and look at this differently or go somewhere differently is the best message. And I think in Utah has been wonderful because, you know, even on a bad day, you know, if you're somewhere in the, in the valley, like 15 minutes in any direction puts you on top of everything, Yep. right? And you just get to take a take, you know, like like I'm, I'm I'm literally embodying what I was doing in Indiana, just like walking away. But here it's like I really get perspective really quickly, um, being in nature. And so I love that about it. Uh, and that's sort of some of the best advice is reconnect, reconnect with people, reconnect with nature, step away from the problem for a second, and then let the answer sort of flow back to you. I've definitely been amused at how many different groups of people that I've seen end up working together over and over and over again, be it in the professional space or the volunteer space. And it seems like a big part of that is that kind of value. They are able to press pause on whatever issue is happening at the moment and really invest in the people around them and build those kinds of relationships to make a community stronger, to be completely frank. So tell us a little bit about um, how you find your own balance. You mentioned that you absolutely find perspective in nature. Do you have any tips or tricks that you utilize, especially as somebody who works on their own at this point? How do you like self-motivate? How do you make sure that you meet your own deadlines? Those kinds of things. You know, I'm still struggling with the deadline piece, um, how to meet my own deadlines. <laughs> um, the, other, the other part for me is, um, you know, how to, how to engage and find your space. I mean, I think it's as important to find how you relax and how you tune out, how you focus, understanding yourself, investing that time yourself to understand how you work, because it makes every relationship you have so much better when you understand your own motivations and your own pleasures even, right? Um, all of those things matter. So you know what, what soothes you, what kind of work environment inspires you, what kind of work environment drives you crazy. Um, and, you know, maybe it comes with time and, you know, um, you know, being 20, almost 25 years in, in different workspaces now for me, I've had definitely different working teams and I, and I learned very quickly. I like working in teams, right? So how do I do that as a solopreneur, right? How do I do that? Uh, when I'm about by myself, well, I find other people and other issues. I mean, it's natural as a, as a consultant, as a lawyer, as a, as a, serv- a service provider in that way, find other teams, but I don't like being isolated. So. I find other teams, other issues, things to be excited about, people who need help executing their vision. And I find joy in that part, right? Let me take the challenging things away from you. Let me take the, the, the rote memory, the, 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 the mechanics, you know, the, the things you don't wanna deal with, the numbers part, right? All of those things from numbers to legal things, let me take those pieces off your plate 
and you work on the visioning part. And if I can handle the back end for you and see you fulfill your vision, and I'm in and I'm out, and that's great. Right? And that 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 part I love. I don't I don't want to do the day-to-day mechanics of things. Um I found, you know, I like to fix problems and once they're fixed, I hand them hand them off. Um, but I'm not gonna sit there cranking the wheel every day, right? I'll I'll fix the gears, oil it up, get it right. Um, but I'll hand that off. All right. And I think understanding how you work and what motivates you is very important to be a successful learning team because you can be completely dissatisfied, disgruntled, and not know it for a long time. Um, how did you learn that about yourself? How did you learn what motivates you? You know, I like to think um, as um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an elder millennial, right? Like in the oldest month of millennials, I think and we so, call that uh, geriatric millennials. I think that's what the actual. I think a geriatric, <laughs> a geriatric millennial. But you know, I was talking. To, I've I've had a certain part of my life being like in math and in sort of tech, computer science. I had to get a new computer, new a new graphing calculator, new calculator every year. So I just had like a stack of things because every year the technology was changing so fast that you just had to constantly stay abreast of things, right? And that I think that program my, my personality became my first career I was an actuary so I did pension plan design and I was coding on like a mainframe with cars so we would batch process things send them to Philadelphia from Chicago go to lunch watch robot wars come back from lunch download our information and and, and, and process things right in, in Excel and access and SQL coding um and that's what I was doing literally 20 years ago um and things have progressed so fast since since then right um, and there were so many things changing and I just became a person who, um, as an expert, someone who studied risk, I can deal with anything that comes up and how to balance those things. Right. And that just became part of my thing. I throw something at me, I'll figure it out. Throw something at me, I'll figure it out. And that just became like the roles I fit in. You show up at a team. It's like these people, I'm comfortable doing this. I'm comfortable doing this. And then it's like, I'll take the junk and make something out of it. Right. And that became how I how I got here, right? Just raising my hand, volunteering for something, volunteering for the 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 foggy mess, and wanting to sculpt something out of piles of clay or whatever, right? Yep, absolutely. I totally understand that. So, why is community engagement so important to you? I think community engagement is important to me because it affects how how we live. Um, one of my early, and I think I think you'll get this in particular. Um, one of my early jokes here when I first arrived, probably my first or second day here, um, I believe um, I was it wasn't it wasn't Senator Cullimore, uh, another Republican senator, had asked me why I choose Utah over Indiana. I said, "Well, yeah, Republican supermajority, but at least in Utah, the Republicans let you have trains, right?" Um, and it's a special place when you think about how people live, how people commute, how people deal with future issues whether it's water rights or economic development, transit, these sort of things. There's so much is growing here and changing that you have to have these open conversations. And I feel like Utah has enough money to do and build whatever it wants to build. It's just what should you build, right? And that's um, that relates back to the community, like the future that you're building for. Um, how are people going to interact? How do people engage? Um, you know, and, and there that's eons of study. Like one of the craziest projects I've been involved in was a legacy cities thing. So it was like Gary, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, Birmingham, Liverpool, and Manchester, England. 
And they were like, our cities are 500 years old. Yours are like 150 years old. We built our cities for people. And so people gather regardless of the mode of transportation, right? We don't care if it's a horse, buggy, wagon, wheelbarrow, Tesla, whatever it is, the cities are built for people and the cars will find a way. We have the warm streets, we have them, right? Um, And I think in our cities here, we're constantly trying to figure out you know, what makes more money, what developers want, what's the bottom line, what gets investors involved in things. And that shifts things over time. But we really go back to how do people connect? How do people interact? That's the crux of of all like our, our biggest sort of tech um, tech innovations or how people connect, how people, how to CRM stuff, how to, how, to, how to reach out to customers, how to sell things to customers, how to move people around uh, with Uber and Lyft, right? Those things all underlying like real solving real day-to-day community problems and i think investing in communities investing in people who are living those things like getting tech into kids hands helps us live a better life because those are the people who are affected by it and so i like that connection from an investment standpoint make sure everyone has an opportunity to improve their lives and maybe we all benefit from the project that happens after that absolutely so last question for you what motivated you to join utah tech leads um so very geeky thing i believe in the power of effective associations um and part of me my my approach as a as a as a lobbyist here is seeing sort of which things a large company should be involved in and you know understanding the work of utah tech leads and other similar organizations around the country it's it's amorphous right you're you're in that place where you're you're playing around in the clay trying to figure out we have this space and industry that does everything, but I have to distill it and make an impact and make sure that somehow the rights and interests and the future possibilities of this industry are protected as we move forward from a legislative standpoint, right? And so you're taking a jumbled mess of world and jumbled mess of things happening and figure out how do I distill that down and say, how do I protect these interests? When those interests aren't necessarily defined. I mean, you have, companies competing against each other and some things benefit some, some things benefit others. Um, but taking that and distilling it down is the work of a strong association. I just want to be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate your membership and we appreciate your leadership in our community as a whole. So thank you, Richard, so much for joining us. And if you're interested in getting in contact with right. Richard, he will be available in our membership directory and we will talk to you very soon. Thanks so much.